Good to see everybody this morning, or I guess this afternoon. Glad you're here. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, picking up in verse 11. Ephesians 4.11, this is the word of the Lord. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. My wife, Andrea, is a great cook, but it's not really her favorite you know, she, she does it, but it's not really her favorite. What she does love, though, is baking. She takes great joy in baking all sorts of wonderful goodies. And so because of that, through the years, I've picked up on, on some of the key differences between baking and cooking. And of course, one of the main differences is with cooking, there's a fair bit of leeway in following the recipe. You know, if you've ever watched a cooking show, they say, you know, you need, you need two tablespoons of oil, and then they just dump it right out of the bottle. You know, you need a teaspoon of salt, and they just shake it in. I realize they're experts, but did they get exactly two tablespoons of oil? The point is, it it doesn't really matter that much. A lot of cooking is to taste. Not so with baking. Baking is much more like science. When it says a teaspoon of baking powder, you don't eyeball it. You have to put exactly one teaspoon in. If you do eyeball the ingredients that the recipe calls for, chances are it's not going to turn out right, it won't taste right, it's not going to rise, or it could just be a complete disaster. But if you follow the recipe exactly as it's laid out, you get to enjoy a a wonderful baked good. So we're in this series, The Church Jesus Died For, and we come to this week, what what I, I would argue is maybe one of the most important aspects of the church, certainly one that I have a lot of concern and passion for, and that is the word, scripture and why it must remain absolutely central in everything the church does. In other words, we might say the church is much more baking than cooking. God has given us his word, his perfect prescriptions, his recipe, if you will, for us to function and thrive. But if we don't follow it too closely, we we go with our own taste, we accommodate ourselves to the world or or whatever, at the very least, we're not going to function as God designs us, Or at the worst, it might just end up an outright disaster. So this is extremely serious because this is the prescription that God has given us for functioning and thriving as his church 
for his glory. So we're, we're back in this wonderfully rich section of Ephesians where the Spirit writing through Paul is, is providing the recipe for how the church should function and what will result if we follow the recipe. And although the word, you know, Scripture, it's never mentioned in this text, it's certainly implied throughout. For example, verse 11 talks about how God gave to the, the, to, excuse me, to the church apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers to lead the church. But what does a prophet speak? What does an evangelist proclaim? How does a pastor shepherd and teach? Of course, according to the word of God. So again, the word must remain central to everything the church does and proclaims. We, we can't get away from that. We can't minimize that. And this has really been the recipe from the beginning. When the church was just forming in, in Acts chapter 2, 42, it says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and prayer. So the word was central, of course, in teaching the word, in godly fellowship is laid out in the word, in communion is commanded by the living word, Jesus Christ, and praying according to God's will and his word. And a few chapters later, in chapter 6, the apostles appoint deacons to serve widows who are being neglected. The reason why, the apostles say, verse 2, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. We will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The main task of a pastor is the ministry of the word and prayer because that's the foundation of the church. And so we have the summary statement given in that chapter, verse 7, which says, and the word of God continued to increase. That's God's description of the church multiplying, the word increasing, because it's that word that's proclaimed that makes disciples of Christ. So with that hopefully being made clear, how exactly does the word do its work in the church. And actually, before we get to that, I really want to emphasize the fact that the word does the work. Because that's an absolutely astounding point. Remember Hebrews 4.12, it says, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and of spirit, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So to say the word is to be central in everything we do is to say, excuse me, it's not to say that we're simply following the prescriptions of a dead text that has good principles for us to follow. Take a football team, for example. They, they have a playbook, and, and if their play calling and ability to execute the plays is superior to the other team, they're going to win. But the, the, the playbook can't make the players run the plays. Every player has to study the plays and perform well and run them well. Now, certainly God works through our living out his word. That's what sanctification is. But that's not to say this is like a team running a playbook. As Hebrews 4 says, the word is living and active. This playbook not only gives the plays, it actually works in you and empowers you to run the plays. Forgive me, this happened first service. I'm going to switch to this mic. I don't really have a love-hate relationship with this mic. It's more of just a hate relationship. <laughs> but the point being that the, the Bible isn't a dead, holy book. It's the living, eternal word of God that God himself uses to transform us to be more like him, to walk according to his will as we know and live the word. And if that's old news to you, 
Stop and think about that afresh because, again, it's absolutely astounding. There's no other book in the world that can do that. Other books can certainly inspire us, but they're not living. They don't transform us into the image of God. Only one book can do that. That is the Word of God. It's completely unique. It's in a category of its own. So why in the world would we as the church let other things guide us or take precedence over the Word? The word That's crazy. We have the greatest resource in the world, the very Word of the living God. And so again, it must remain central to everything we do as God accomplishes his work through us, through it. So back to the question, how exactly does the word do its work in the, in the church? Our text lists four ways it does in the church when the church prioritizes it. First, verse 12, it says it equips the saints for the work of ministry. So the first thing that this tells us is that we, as members of Christ's body, the church, have works of ministry to accomplish. Back in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, it says, we're saved by grace through faith. It is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not, not as a result of works so that no one can boast. So we're not saved by works. It's faith alone in Christ alone. But then verse 10 says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we're not saved by the good works, but we've been saved to do good works that Christ has prepared for us. And this is so compelling. This is such a compelling aspect of the Christian life. Because the Christian life is not, you said a prayer, you're not going to hell, that's awesome. Now just kind of continue living however you want. Now, now, praise God, anyone who genuinely repents and believes in Jesus Christ and Lord and Savior as Lord and Savior is saved. They don't go to the hell that we all deserve. We have life in him. We get to spend eternity in his presence. Praise God. We can't wait for that. But salvation doesn't end there. The result of your salvation is that Christ, your Redeemer, who purchased you, who bought you with his blood, has given you a mission. And you're now to spend your life walking in him and his word, becoming more like him, accomplishing the works that he's given you for his glory. And what's really cool about that is the way that God often works in the world is through us, his church. He doesn't have to do that, but he often chooses to do that. So as, as incredible as being saved and the, and the future hope that we have to look forward to is, it gets even better. Christ has assigned works to you, the members of his church, and part of how he accomplishes his purposes in this world is through us doing the works that he's given us. And again, often that takes place as we work together corporately in the local church body. And again, that's, that's, that's incredible. I mean, you're searching for meaning in life. There's not much greater meaning and purpose than that. And we're told throughout scripture what these works are, things like Proclaiming the gospel, making disciples, growing in sanctification, living as godly spouses, parents, workers, serving one another, many other works. But again, the, the cool thing is God doesn't just save us, tell us we're supposed to do all these things and say, you know, put your best effort forward and we'll see how it turns out. Like I said earlier, he does the work through the word when we follow the prescriptions that he's given for us, the plays for us to run. So that means coming to church to sing the word, to pray the word, to hear the word taught, to act the word out in communion, serving one another. This isn't just rote ritual. These are the means that God actually uses to equip and transform us to accomplish his, his works through us. And again, it's the word that does the work. It's absolutely astounding, the work God does through his word. 
I came across a study a number of years back by Robert Woodbury, a Baylor professor, published the fascinating results of a decade of research in the American Political Science Review titled The Missionary Roots of Liberal Democracy. And his research defends the thesis that he says the work of missionaries turns out to be the single largest factor in ensuring the health of nations. In other words, in studying Protestant missionaries specifically, who often get a, a bad rap for destroying cultures, kind of part of the evils of colonialization, much to his surprise, wasn't what he intended when he set out on his study, but he concluded the exact opposite. And certainly while there were bad missionaries who did bad things, he yields this incredible claim. He says, areas where Protestant missionaries had a significant presence in the past are on average more economically developed today with comparatively better health, lower infant mortality, lower corruption, greater literacy, and higher educational attainment, especially for women. So bottom line, historically, the larger the presence of Protestant missionaries in a country, the greater the positive social reform of what we would call cultural transformation. And so that's pretty cool. Like I said, it kind of pushes back on the missionaries went around destroying cultures kind of idea. But that's not actually why I bring up this study. Here's why I bring it up. There's a direct implication of his research regarding the, the word doing the work. And here it is. He says, the positive effect of missionaries on democracy applies only to conversionary Protestants. Protestant clergy financed by the state as well as Catholic missionaries had no comparable effect in areas where they worked. In other words... The areas that received the greatest positive social change were those areas where Protestant missionaries came not to accomplish social change, but only to preach the gospel. And as a result of preaching the gospel, the social change happened. He says they were actually just unintended consequences. The word of the work, uh, the, the, the work of the word is astounding. It's what transforms cultures. And certainly in the context of the church, that same word is what God uses to equip his church, to be built up and to go out and make disciples of the nations. Again, it's very profound. In order, in order to be equipped to do that work of ministry, that means the word must be central in our lives and in the life of the local church. The second way the word works when the church prioritizes it is the building up of the body to maturity. We see this in verse 12 and verses 15 and 16, where the language is essentially the same, the body growing as it is equipped. The metaphor of the church being the body of Christ, of course, is used in multiple places in the scripture. One of the more detailed being 1 Corinthians 12, which says, for the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. But, that, but as it is, God arranged the members in the body as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The point being, as individuals, in order for us to function as God designed, we have to be a part of a healthy local church, the body of Christ, where we are contributing members as a part of that body. A hand out by himself isn't going to accomplish much, but as a part of the body, God will use that person greatly as he guides individual members to function together as the church to accomplish his purposes. I, I love the, the imagery of Psalm 1, talking about the word and the righteous man. And, and the righteous man 
says, his delight is in the law of the Lord, the word, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, in its season, and its life, excuse me, its leaf does not wither. Certainly what's true individually is true of the body. When we're constantly being nourished by the word, we continually grow and we're built up and we yield fruits of good works. And, and again, what is true of the individual is true of the church together. It's the word that is the lifeblood. We'll take the next two ways the word works as the church prioritizes it together, found in verse 13, which says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. So that's the next two results, the unity of faith and the knowledge of Christ. But before we look at those two, notice it says that we're to be equipped and built up until we attain to the unity of faith and knowledge of Christ. Well, when is that going to happen? Well, hint, it's not going to happen in this life. It will happen in the next, in eternity. And of course, even then, we're never going to attain the, the complete knowledge of Christ. He's, he's infinite. We'll forever be growing in him. But the point is, we're to continue to prioritize the word in the church until Christ comes. It's kind of like saying, keep working out until you attain the perfect physique. Well, guess what? That's kind of a different way of saying, keep working out until you die. Because you're never going to attain the perfect physique. And even if you do attain whatever your definition of perfection is, as soon as you stop training, you're going to lose it. So you have to keep training just to keep it. it. It's a similar idea here. Of course, we should be growing in unity in the knowledge of Christ. We, we aren't to be stagnant. But we never get to the place where we say, we, we've done it. We've, we've now, we've known, we now know everything there is to know about the knowledge of Christ. We can kind of move on from the word and focus on other things now. This is actually one of the, the great joys of being a part of the church. We get to continually grow in Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. There's, there's no such thing as going too deep. You can't go too deep. It's just exploring more of Christ. Now, back to looking at these individually, starting with the unity of faith. And this admittedly can sometimes be a sticky one. I, I, it seems like I hear Christians Sometimes uh, prioritizing faith, or excuse me, prioritizing unity, which is good, but, but then leaving off the of faith, unity of faith. In other words, sometimes it almost seems like unity at all costs is the goal. Any sort of disunity is considered unchristlike. And if that's your view, I think you're probably going to run into some difficulties. For example, what do you do with Paul in Galatians 2? He says, opposing Peter to his face because Peter stopped eating with the Gentiles and apparently other Jewish believers joined, joined with him when some, some of the muck, muckety-muck Jews from Jerusalem came into town. So these are two leaders of the church in conflict and Paul's summation of why he did this, he says in verse 14 is, but when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter, and then he goes on, the point being, Paul didn't seek unity at all costs. He sought unity in the truth. As John 17, 17 says, Christ speaking, Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. There can be no true unity apart from the truth of the word. 1 Timothy 3.15, the church of the living God is a pillar and buttress of the, of the truth. The church upholds, protects the truth as given to it by God and his word. So that's what the of faith and unity of faith in verse 13 is referring to. Faith in this context is similar to what Jude says in 1.3. 
Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. The faith once for all delivered is the entire body of salvation truth contained in the word of God. So unity that is not found in the faith, the truth is a false unity. The goal, the will of God, is that the church would know the truth, be the foundation and support of the truth, and then have genuine unity in his glorious truth. And the way you maintain godly unity is by protecting the truth, not by having unity with those who would seek to deny it or tear it down. I heard a podcast recently where a Mormon was saying the Protestant church was false and and one of his proofs was the countless denominations we've split up into. See, no unity. How could they be the true church when they've split up into a million different denominations, which actually discounts the, the multiple Mormon, what are essentially denominations, but that's a subject for another day. He obviously thought that he'd nail us, but I, I, don't, I don't think he really did, because I, there, I think there are multiple doctrines that, that we can disagree on and split into different denominations. For example, Baptists and Presbyterians have a, have a different view on baptism. It makes sense that we would split up into separate denominations. But when it comes to the unity of the faith, the essential truths of Scripture, we have complete unity. We all believe in the Trinity, that Christ is fully God, fully man, the gospel, and so on. Now, in the moment any of those truths are denied, well, then we can't have unity. But as long as we remain in the faith, the truth, the goal is always unity, even across denominational lines. Again, the next work the word accomplishes, as I already mentioned, is the knowledge of Christ, which we've touched on. But I want to just add one other thing. John Calvin famously began his institutes by saying, nearly all wisdom we possess, that is to say true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. And he comes back to these over and over, and it's reciprocal. Only in knowing God can we know ourselves, and only in knowing who we really are are we able to truly know God. So those existential crisis questions that have plagued people for millennia, who are we, why are we here, I mean, those really are the fundamental questions. We were created to ask those questions. But not only, not only to ask and die in frustration seeking the answers, but actually in knowing the answers, And the answer is we discover who we really are by knowing God. And in knowing God, we truly know who we are and why we're here. And again, those answers are only found in the word that God has graciously given us. You were created to know God. And by know, I mean deep, intimate, worshipful relationship in him. And it's through the word and the word's work in the church that we continually grow in our knowing of him. So again, the church isn't just a box to check. So those are the four results God accomplishes through his church as we prioritize the word. We move to some of the practical benefits of this. Our text mentions three. The first is, it tells us, it prevents us from falling prey to false teaching. Verse 14 says we're to grow to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. This is along the lines of of what we said earlier about the body of Christ 
not, not being static, always, always growing, except this is even a little bit starker. The, the New Testament reserves harsh language for those who remain immature in the faith, such as the author of Hebrews chastising these readers in chapter 5 that, that they should have been teachers of the word by then, but they remained children who, who you know, should have been able to feed them meat, but meat's for the mature, so we have to, have to feed the unskilled children milk. And we find the same language in our text where verse 13, verse 13, we're admonished to grow into mature manhood, not remain, verse 14, as children. And who are the children he's referring to? Those who are tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine that blows through. Children are, are undiscerning of, of danger often. They'll chase a ball out onto a busy street. They're not focused on the danger of the cars, just the ball that they want. They don't know how to determine if food is expired and is going to make them sick. If they want it, they'll eat it, even if it's chemicals that can kill them. That, that's the picture here. And it's a reminder of one of the shocking truths of Scripture. And that is that while certainly there are regular attacks on the truth from outside the church, many of the most significant attacks on the truth have actually come from inside the church and specifically through pastors, through leaders, the very ones who are supposed to be feeding and protecting the sheep. So that means all of us have to be matured in the word to be able to spot that and root it out, as opposed to unknowingly drinking poison like a child just because the pastor's up here saying it or writing it in a book. One of my favorite church history books is Harold O.J. Brown's book titled Heresy. The premise of the book is essentially the, the history of the church is a continual pattern of, of heresy arising in the church, the church then responding by officially codifying what it already believed and taught in condemning the, the unbiblical belief as heresy. For those of you who know church history, you know one of the most pronounced was Arianism. The term Arianism comes from a man named Arius, who was the Bishop of Alexandria, died way back in AD 336, and he taught that Christ was at one point created by God the Father. Prior to that, the Son did not exist. Either did, either did the Holy Spirit, only the Father did. So, while the Son was created before the rest of creation, he's greater than all of creation. He's not co-equal to the Father. He's similar to the Father, but he's not the same. He's not of the same nature as a created being. And in AD 325, the Council of Nicaea condemned this as a heresy, produced the, the Nicene Creed, which hopefully many of you are aware of, which states Christ is of the same substance, the same nature as the Father. It just clearly states what, what Scripture teaches. They're, they don't have a similar nature. They have the same nature. Distinct persons, persons one nature, co-equal, each fully God. As Hebrews 1.3 says, he's, Christ is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. That was a long time ago, but we find uh, essentially the same doctrine with Jehovah's Witnesses today. They believe Jesus was created by Jehovah. And he's a lesser, though mighty God. Essentially, they're modern-day Arians, which tragically means that they believe in a false Jesus and a false gospel. But notice the heresy of Arianism was started by a prominent bishop. This is a sad reality that I already pointed to. Many heresies originate from within the leadership of the church. And I think that's at least in part, I don't know if you've ever 
notice this, but virtually every book in the New Testament is either written to address a specific false teaching, like Galatians, Colossians, Jude, or at the very least, it offers warning against false teachers, even incredibly encouraging books like Philippians, even Revelation, where Christ in the first, in chapters two and three, addressing the seven churches, takes a number of those churches to task for allowing false teachers and false teaching into the churches. Like I said, the, the history of the church in some, in some capacity is kind of the continual fighting against heresy from within the church, really back to from, from the beginning. One clear example of this is Paul in his farewell address to the elders of the church at Ephesus, the church he planted, spent a bunch of time there. You know, many people refer to Paul as the greatest Christian in history, modeled standing firm in the truth. This church was founded by him. If any church was, was built to withstand heresy, certainly from within the church, it's this church. Yet Paul says to the elders of this church, Acts 20, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained by his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Paul will never see them again. So he warns them to be on the guard for the flock. That's what pastors are supposed to do. Because fierce wolves, quite, quite vivid imagery, are going to ravage the flock. So they have to be on guard, protect the flock. Yet here's the shocker. Paul says these ravenous wolves that are going to cause so much damage aren't going to come from outside the church, but from within. And not only from within, but from within the leadership. Maybe some of the elders standing there that day were actually wolves. Again, that's been the case throughout history. Now, this isn't some conspiracy theory or something that happened long ago but doesn't happen today. You know, come on, Scott, relax. You know, all this divisiveness, you know, you're talking about unity. You know, it's going to be all right. Let's move on. Well, not only is this something that's not just relegated to the ancient past, I've actually experienced this personally my generation, Gen, Gen X, our major heresy that we introduced to the church was called the Emergent Church, took hold in the, in the 2000s, guys like Rob Bell and Brian McLaren, who, who had massive sway, but ultimately were, were really just preaching heresy. Yet I was massively consuming these guys' books. The reason why, at least in part, was every single one of my pastor friends were reading and recommending them to me. So with the best of intentions and with my guard down because of who was recommending them, I dug in. But after reading one book in particular, I, I couldn't shake that something just seemed really off. And, you know, I didn't, couldn't go to my pastor friends, so I just kind of started doing research on my own. And I came across guys that I'd never heard of at the time, like, D.A. Carson and John MacArthur and Kevin DeYoung and these guys who'd written sort of book-length responses and sermon series and articles and so on, really warning the church of the dangers of this movement that was having so much sway. And I could not believe what I was reading and, and hearing and that apparently so many of us had, had been so easily deceived. And, and so my wife and I, we, we went, we had this sort of friend group, small group, people we just kind of did life with, hung out with. Most of these people I'd known since childhood. All of them were pastors, missionaries in, in some way, shape, or form. And these were all the people reading these books. And so we, we went 
you know, went back to them basically trying to, you know, here's, here's what we're learning. Isn't this crazy? Can you believe this? Assuming that their concern would be the truth and protecting from heresy, but instead the opposite happened. To a person, they accused Andrea and I of being the problem for being so upset and pointing out that there might be issues with what these guys were preaching. So it wasn't the ones peddling the heresy, it was the ones pointing out the heresy that were the problem. Which is another lesson we learn from history. Often it's one person or a small group of people standing against the overwhelming majority. Standing firm in the truth is often not very fun. It's pretty lonely. I heard a quote on this that I liked. It said, Desperate times call for faithful men, not careful men. The careful men come later and write the biographies of the faithful men, lauding them for their courage. Back to the story, one pastor friend told me, you have a choice. You can learn from this wonderful new expression of the faith, or you can dig your heels in and and be old fuddy-duddies. I don't know why he said fuddy-duddies, but that was the term that that he used. And it wasn't easy, but Andrew and I chose to be old fuddy-duddies. And over the course of the next year or so, we lost an entire friend group. Again, many of whom I'd known since childhood. These were some of our closest friends, like I said, that we did life together, but we were viewed as the mean fundamentalists who weren't going on with this wonderful new teaching. It was extremely painful. It was bewildering. It was confusing. It was not what we expected. But fast forward to about a year or so ago, one of those people, to her great credit, seems very few people have the character to do this, but one of those people was actually the most offended at the time by what we were saying, reached out to us after years of no contact, telling us, you guys were right all along. She couldn't believe how, how deceived she was, but her eyes were wide open now, and the main reason why, what, what prompted this was she told us that the majority of, she's still in this friend group, the majority of people in this friend group, again, all pastors and missionaries, in one way, shape, or form, no longer believe in the Orthodox faith. They'd all basically adopted some form of liberal Christianity, everyone's saved, God is love, no judgment, Bible's not the word of God, all that kind of stuff. Essentially what, what the emergents were preaching. And it was so encouraging to hear from her, and we've, we've reestablished this relationship, which is wonderful. She's just, you know, passionately on fire, preaching the gospel, has even gone back to this friend group and kind of challenged them on on some of their teaching that they're saying now, which actually one of them said back to her, back to her, you know, you you better relax. You're starting to sound a lot like Scott and Andrea Wilson. Like we had become a byword. So while it's certainly wonderful to have that relationship restored, it's obviously devastating to hear that these people who we still love and care for are no longer professing the true God, the true gospel, the inerrant word of God. It's sad, but it's not surprising because false teaching is insidious. It often doesn't stop at the initial stage. It keeps progressing. It's like a cancer. Just like you don't get a little bit of cancer and it stops. Don't worry, it's just a little bit of cancer. No, you'd better aggressively kill that cancer or it's going to continue to spread and kill you. It's the same thing with false teaching. I've seen it over and over. I'm tired of seeing it. I don't want to see it anymore. First, you cast doubt about the word of God. You don't deny it all. But maybe some of the more troubling passages, 
Some of the passages that the, the culture struggles with, I might even struggle with it. I like this reading of it better than that one. And so we just kind of doubt, we change things. But then some, it doesn't stop there. It progresses to other doctrines. And then some people just end up way over here in a faith of their own making, no longer believing in the true God and his word. And that leads people to hell. If you're uncomfortable with this, I'm sorry. But that's why I keep majoring on this. That's why I'm spending so much time on this. That's why God warns us about this so much in his word. That's why we need to take this seriously. This isn't about winning a theological debate. This is about people's eternal souls. That's what standing firm in the truth is all about. We shouldn't have tolerance for the false teachers. It's not the time for tolerance. We need to stand firm in the truth and we need to do it in love, which we'll get to next. But we need to be much more like the Bereans who famously in Acts chapter 17, when Paul and Silas came to them preaching Christ, who they not heard of, it said they, they joyfully heard the word preached, but they held it up to, to the word of God to see if this was true. Does it comport with the word of God? That's our filter. And of course, to know, the word of, to, to know if it comports with the word of God, we have to know the word of God in the first place. But that's all of our jobs. You're supposed to hold us as leaders accountable to that word. So again, the word must remain absolutely central. One of the main signs of maturity given is the next implication of being equipped and built up. Verse 15 says we are to speak the truth in love. So rather than being a child tossed to and fro, we're to speak the truth in love, growing in every way into Christ is an often deployed phrase as it should be because the point is we shouldn't have one without the other. If I accurately proclaim the truth to someone in a way that figuratively beats them up, they're likely not going to want to have anything to do with the truth that I'm proclaiming. Similarly, if I avoid the difficult parts of the truth in the name of an inoffensive sentimental love, then people can't really be saved and conformed to that truth because the truth wasn't actually being faithfully proclaimed. One requires the other, and the person who embodies both is mature. Because they've been trained in the word. They know the word. They can faithfully proclaim it. But they've also been transformed by that word into loving as Christ loves. The truth they preach is embodied by the love that they live. It's a huge ideal. But again, it's God doing his work through his word that allows this maturity to take place. But notice... This phrase also implies something significant that I think sometimes is overlooked. It implies we're speaking the truth in the first place. So before we even take somebody to task for not doing it in love, maybe we should hold up the mirror and re remind ourselves our job isn't to hide out in the corner hoping no one notices us. We're to be on mission. We're to be in the fight speaking the truth in love. The final implication is found in verse 16, which tells us the end game of being equipped to build up in Christ, the body working properly and growing, is that it is building itself up in love. This obviously continues the command of speaking the truth in love, but the point is, love is the end goal. 
Now, in saying that, we have to make sure we, we don't misunderstand that because, frankly, the world says things kind of like that a lot. But the world uses love in a different way. It defines love in a different way. Often it uses love to eliminate judgment. Jesus doesn't judge. He's love. Who are you to judge me? You're not being Christ-like. So we as the church, again, we're supposed to be not conformed to the world, but transformed by the word. We're supposed to hold up that to the word and see what the word says about love. Is that, is that the definition of love that God gives? And make sure that we're standing firm in God's love, not what the world says love is. And of course, there's multiple places we could go to define love in Scripture. But one of those places I think sometimes might be overlooked is in 1 John 4.10, which says, in this is love. So God's going to define love for us here. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So propitiation is the key word, which means the wrath of God against our sins being satisfied through Christ's work on the cross. In other words, wrapped up in God's very definition of love is his judging our sin. God's love is a holy love. Because God is love, absolutely, but also God is holy. And so we can't separate the two. And if we hear those being separated, then we know we're not talking about a biblical love. So then, what does it mean? If it's not a non-judgmental love, what is biblical love? What does that mean? What does that look like? Well, I think Christ answered that in John 14, 15, when he said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And of course, he summed up the commandments in Matthew 22 by saying, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So Christ says love and law, love and the word, they're completely linked. If we truly love God, we will love his word. We will joyfully obey his commandments. We will desire nothing more than to please him, to be holy as he is holy, to, to, to delight in his word, which then leads us to love our neighbor as ourselves by denying ourselves as Christ loved us by dying for us. It all centers on the word that God uses to mature his church into his perfect love as his redeemed church glorifies him as an outpost in this world of his holy love. Well, we covered a lot of ground, but here's the takeaway. We need each other. We all need the church. You need us, the leadership to, to mature you in the word. You have to hold us accountable to that word. And we need you, we need all of us to fulfill our role in the body, using our gifts for the benefit of the saints, for the building up of this body so that God can accomplish his work through us in this world for his glory. We do it all together in him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word, your truth that, that conforms us, transforms us into you, into your image. We pray that it would be alive in us individually and in this church together, that you would use us for your glory, that you would use us to, to save people, to bring people to you, to enter into the loving relationship that we have in you, our King, our Lord, our Savior. We praise you, our Holy Lord. Amen.